Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 48. Hello, and welcome back to the Medical School HQ Podcast, the place to learn how to excel as a pre-med student, learn what it takes to survive medical school, and turn your dream of becoming a physician into reality. We're bringing you the most unbiased, honest, and accurate information available online today. Welcome back. If this is uh, not your first visit, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. We appreciate you taking some time to stop by and listen to us today. And uh, I'll introduce myself. My name is Ryan Gray. I'm a physician. And along with myself and my lovely wife, Allison, who is also a physician, we run the medical school headquarters and this podcast. And today we have a very interesting and different format for you. So if this is the first time you're listening, this is not our typical format. Allison and I actually jumped onto Google Hangouts to do a live Q&A. And while only a few people showed up and a couple people asked questions, we had plenty of questions to answer that uh, people had emailed us uh, about. So we had plenty of emails that had questions, and so Allison and I kind of go back and forth and answer those, and then the couple people that were on, they asked some questions as well. So hopefully you'll uh, get a lot of great information out of this today. We talked about some uh, doing extracurriculars and when to start tackling those. We talked about the best kind of MCAT tips on how to study. We talked about picking a pre-medical college, pre-med school, Um, an undergraduate school, the best way to get into medical school. Uh, And we covered some reasons to be a physician, letters of recommendation, and uh, dual degree BSMD programs, and if they're worth the time. So hopefully you you, uh, are interested in some of these topics. If you're not, then maybe you'll enjoy next week. (laughs) But if you are, uh, I hope you stick around and listen to the whole thing. A lot of great information. But first, this podcast is brought to you by the Academy at Medical School Headquarters. 
an online membership site for helping you through the pre-med process. With monthly office hours, webinars, and a growing library of video and audio interviews and courses, it is a vital tool to help you get into and through medical school. Just go to jointheacademy.net for more information. And by the way, if you're already a member, the day this comes out, October 23rd, we're having a webinar on the MCAT hosted by the Princeton Review. So a nice exclusive webinar. So if you're listening to this and you are a member of the Academy, uh, stay tuned uh, or join us. Wednesday, October 23rd at 9 p.m., and uh, you'll get a great webinar. The other thing I want to do real quick before we actually go into the Google Hangout question and answer is give a huge shout-out to the three people that left us uh, great five-star reviews. Those three are 18D Pre-Med, who says... Uh, great podcast. Uh, it's an, from an active duty person, which is awesome. Thank you for serving. Uh, we have another one from Rob, who says, by far the best pre-med podcast out there. Thank you, Rob. I think I agree with you. <laughs> and uh, one from Dirt Doc 8404 and another active duty uh, Fleet Marine Force Navy Corpsman and a New York City paramedic. So uh, again, Dirt Doc 8404, thank you for all of your work uh, and what you do. And thank you for those five-star reviews. If you want to leave a review, a five-star review would be great. We actually have 95 five-star reviews. And Allison and I are going to do something special. When we hit our 100th five-star review, I think we're going to have a little giveaway. If you've left a five-star review, I think we're we're going to do a, a raffle for a, an Amazon gift card or something and uh, give that to somebody that's left a review. So we'd love to get to 100 within the next couple weeks. If you want to leave one, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes, or you can just do it right in the iOS podcast app if that's what you're using. So all the intro out of the way. Sorry, that was a little long. Let's get into the interview, or not the interview, the question and answer session with uh, Allison and myself. All right. So the first question we have is from Eric, and it's a recent question. I just got it the other day. He says, one thing that is truly stressing me out right now is the feeling that I am not becoming involved in an ample amount of medically related, quote unquote, experiential activities, clubs and whatnot. As a freshman in undergraduate school, I'm likely overthinking this. However, I truly feel like I would I would like to be involved with something that would make me stand out and show determination and commitment to a medical career, even as a freshman. What advice do you have for me? So what do you have for Eric? What do you think? So he's a freshman mm-hmm. and he's worried about starting to get those extracurriculars in. Well, I think there are two parts. It's important to have extracurriculars. Uh, I don't think anyone wants a student who is just a student because you want to show that you're well-rounded and that you have other interests. But I think it's important to also separate that from clinical experience because you don't have to feel like you have to jump right into that when you're at work on your college courses, working on making sure you're doing well with your GPA. Uh, One thing that you can do is to define one or two 
um, really good, really uh, thorough experiences like volunteering in a medical setting, for example, which kind of kills two birds with one stone. Uh, so I think it's important to get extracurriculars and it's certainly important to get clinical experience. The question is, do you have to jump right in and delve into a whole bunch of stuff? And I don't think so. I think you need to show that you have interest and that certainly you're going to gain clinical experience. That's a, that's a hundred percent. Yeah. But yeah. And this was something that, um, Dr. Politis and I talked about back in session number 35, I think I'm pulling up the list real quick. Um, Julio's on with us. Hello. Um, and the the one thing that Dr. Politis and I talked about was the fact that, it, that and this was the podcast about uh, overcoming a bad start to undergraduate, your undergraduate career. And the the one thing we talked about was students oftentimes try to come into a new situation being undergraduate school, and hit the ground running and overload their course schedule with biology and chemistry and all the other pre-med recs. They're trying to squeeze it all in. They're trying to get all their uh, extracurriculars going, and they end up falling flat on their face. And the, the recommendation over and over and over again is go slow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have plenty of time. Get your feet wet with with your grades. Understand that undergraduate classes are not going to be as easy as high school classes. And and get accustomed to being on your own and creating your own schedule and mm-hmm. get a little bit of the college life and go from there. And and then start adding in those extracurriculars when you know that you have time for them. Absolutely. And and obviously you'll have to make time for them eventually, but you don't need to to get them all done immediately. Yeah, I think when you're 17, 18, 19 years old and you go to college, it's the first time for most people you're out on your own and there's so much that's new and so much uh, you're totally in a new place with a million different people and new experiences ahead of you. So it's really easy to get pulled in and want to be pulled in a million different directions. But at the end of the day, college the the purpose of college is still to succeed academically in some area that is going to give you allow you to do well with a career so if if you're even thinking about pre-med going to medical school someday uh you want to keep that in mind that you're you're at school for school and just as Ryan said you can definitely add those things along but don't don't feel just because you're at the the fair the the I remember those things were so overwhelming the the club fair you have to sign up for everything. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's plenty to do. So Julio is on here. Julio, you want to say hi? Hello, good evening. How are you? I'm doing well. You're you're live on the podcast, Julio. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. It's great to be on. <laughs> Welcome. Long time listener. <laughs> First time caller. First time caller. <laughs> awesome. Julio, what questions do you have live for the podcast? Um, you know, I am currently going through uh, my MCAT um, practice test and also MCAT studying for an April test date. And, you know, quite frankly, I was just wondering what uh, I could possibly do to maximize my uh, my studying. So, 
So I want to I want to ignore that question, Julio, <laughs> and and <laughs> oh, go back. That's right. That's right. That's right. I forgot about it. And and go back to your other question that I've seen before, and that's the fact that you're interested in taking the MCAT as a trial run, maybe in January, yes. and then yes. taking the real thing a couple months later. Yeah, I don't know if that's like an original or an <laughs> uncommon thing to do. But um, I was testing, I was doing some practice tests, and I figured, what if I, you know, took it in January, voided it, that way I have somewhat of an understanding and somewhat of a grasp, aside from practice tests, actually the real thing, and then taking it again for real in April. Yeah. So, Allison, what do you think about that? Well, uh, (laughs) I don't know if it's common or not common, but as long as you make it work for you, I think that's what's important. So uh, I think as long as you're practicing, you're you're getting good study time in for each exam you sit for, that's probably the most important thing. Because if you took it as a, quote, trial run, we actually, I think we've talked to uh, a number of people who just went and winged it on the MCAT and as we've wow. been talking about, right, which I know you're not doing, but, but that, no, no, no. that's a surefire recipe for, for not doing well, because then if you bomb it once and you do really well later, that, mm-hmm. you know, that can just be a little risky, but I, I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with that plan. If you do really well on it the first time, it's also, that's kind of a twofer. Great. You don't have to take it again. No, later. but he's, he's talking about taking it, and voiding it. So, oh, but voiding it even before you yeah. get your score. Yeah. Oh, I so he's I going see. into it with the knowledge that he's going to void it. Oh. And so from a from a psychological standpoint, and, and I've already answered the question for him before uh, in the forums in the academy, but I answered it and said, psychologically, and, and this goes back to my have a plan B kind of thinking as well. If psychologically you're studying for a test that you know doesn't matter, you're already not going to do as well because in your mind it's it's a trial run so you whenever those long nights come ahead and and you need to study you're going to go eh, i really don't have to study this is just a tri- trial run you i could play devil's advocate there though and say i think there are some people who are i mean very committed and and going to study and and take it seriously but know then that the pressure's off um so it could but then he's voiding it so all that work and then you're gonna go yeah never mind yes but (laughs) but i think for this for a certain kind of person that actually could be useful because it's really it's like the ultimate practice test if you think about it It you know but you know that it's not going to count for anything so if it doesn't go well the pressure's off so i i don't I mean, I don't know if the MCAT would love it if everybody did that. Well, I guess they would because they'd make more money anyway. They don't care. (laughs) (laughs) The AAMC would love that. Right. So my recommendation, take it once. Take it once. Study your butt off. Take it once. Do do it right the first time. Take it early enough so that you get your the the 30 days um, that it takes to get your score back so that you have your score back in time before you have to submit your applications. Okay. If for whatever reason something happens and you don't do as well as you want, we all have those days. I had a day yesterday I didn't do well as well as I wanted on a test, a different kind of test. Um, but if you need to take it again, then you need to take it again. But the the test is so grueling and just such a pain. That's one thing about it. It is not the kind of thing you want to take twice. They if, fingerprint you. It's a whole process. If, if you're going to go into it, 
the first time, knowing that you're going to cancel it, that second time, I think you're going to dread it more because you're going to know how grueling it is. Yeah. So that's that's my advice on, on that question. Back to your original question. Hey, your garage is open. We actually visit family in Texas, right? Okay. Ah, okay. What was your original question? MCAT study, study tips? MCAT, right? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. MCAT study tips. So the answer is always C. That's the tip. <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay, C it is. <laughs> C. Yeah, so uh, I don't know, Austin, you can well, take a shot at this. Well, the answer is to tune in for our upcoming webinar, right? Well, right. that's that's not the general answer for everybody listening. Right, People no that much. are part of the academy will. That is true. Uh, go ahead, Ray. I cut you off. We'll uh, hear that. Now go ahead and answer. In terms of general study tips yeah. for the MCAT? Yeah, I, general yeah. study tips, like try to maximize um, the amount of learning to, uh, to correlate with uh, answering the maximum amount of questions that you do on practice tests. Because you have, oh, um, okay. you have a big disconnect with, between some students, they study differently. Mm-hmm. You'll find that some students do a lot of content, a lot, a lot, a lot of content. Right. And it's not until they're done with all their content, their their subject content, that they start attacking practice passages. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. backwards, that, <laughs> personally. Yeah. Yeah. Other, other yeah. students, without knowing all the material or without mastering all the material, mm-hmm. they'll go ahead and start doing practice tests. Right. And then do it the opposite way and then go back and, like, review the rationales, see what mistakes they made, and then try to fix those in the next practice test. Right. And then there's the happy medium, maybe kind of doing questions as you go along and then repeating questions later when you've gone over the content and are more brushed up on it and able to better answer the questions. I, you know, I, I think I just think back on my own kind of what works for me. Um, and that may not apply to everybody out there, but I think any time that I've been successful in studying and, and for a test, it's always l- reading the content, getting it down and maybe going over it one more time and then starting with practice questions right away. Because I think if you sit on the content for too long, it gets out of your mind. It's not, you know, in in your working memory and (laughs) it's stuffed away somewhere. Uh, And it's just a lot easier to kind of get lost. Um, So if you're doing practice questions all along, uh, but, you know, and then going back to the, the other kind of scenario, you said if you jump right in with questions, and you don't have the content to build from, then you're going to get a lot of missed answers. And I don't think that's kind of best use of your time either. So I'd say, mm-hmm. you know, doing the content, doing the questions all along, and then you can always go back and, and circle the ones you missed and go over those, you know, and, and take that back to the content too, if that answers your question. That's Excellent. No, saying. it does. Yeah, it's, it's good advice. So good advice. Julio, I'll, I'll answer the question more data driven with And and something that I've talked about a ton, I know, the 2008 uh, Journal of Science, the the science article that came out about the MCAT and what it really is involved, what what kind of questions it asks and what material is on there. And Mm -hmm. out of AP Biology, undergraduate um, courses in general, the GRE, medical school tests, and the MCAT, the MCAT had the least amount of content, content-based content questions right. out of all of those tests. So when, when a student sits down and studies content, hmm. I think, and, the, and, and the, the research backs up, 
that they're doing themselves a disservice. If they're only studying content. If they're only studying content and that the majority of their time is spent studying content because the tests test your ability to analyze the questions Mm -hmm. and comprehend Mm -hmm. the questions and what they're actually asking and then using a little bit of that content that you've learned and coming to the answer that they want. It's not, it's not a strictly content-based test. And so if you only learn content, you, you're going to do poorly on it. So you need to understand how the AAMC writes the test, the right. types of questions that they have on there, and you only do that by taking lots and lots and lots of practice tests and actually taking real sit-down, time yourself, and, and be honest with your timing and take a full practice right. test. A real simulation. Simulate it. Go, go to the library. Get out of your normal routine. Go somewhere else where you're going to put on some headphones and block all the sound. Right. Uh, don't put on music because you can't listen to music during the test. And, okay. and actually go and simulate sitting there for, well, it's going to be five, six, seven hours now. I forget, I forget the total time. Um, mm. and, and see how you do. And actually, and this is where a lot of people fail, is they take a test and they go, oh, crap, I only got a 27. They take another test. Oh, crap, I got a 26. They don't take the time to go through each and every question, figure out why they got it right, why they got it wrong. So that's a big part of it is, is taking the time to go over that test. You know, it's, it's interesting you brought up the music, by the way, because I don't know if that's something that I see so many people doing when they're at a coffee shop. You know, they have headphones on. It's probably also to drown out the noise. But for uh, pre-meds and medical students out there and all of us, it, they definitely have shown data has shown that when you're listening to music or other things, it's I mean, it makes sense intuitively. It's distracting, but uh, plenty of people still do it. <laughs> and they listen to music uh, like hardcore <laughs> music while they're studying and I definitely wouldn't recommend against that. Yeah. All right. We're going to answer another question that was emailed into us. So, Julio, I'm going to mute you. Raise your hand or wave if you want to say something again. (laughs) Do we have another friend in blue, too? Um, They're there, but... A mystery person. Just life. Okay. Just life. Just life. Are you there? I do not hear them. All right. So... Uh, Elise wrote in and said, I must say that the main stressor for me right now is finding a college to go to that will put me on the right track for medical school. I am currently a senior in high school, desperately searching and applying to colleges. I would really appreciate any help you could give me. I have looked at quite a few pages on the website and they're all helpful, blah, blah, blah. All right, so a senior in high school. And so high school students... Are, are already stressing. They're already in that pre-med mode. Yep. And, and that's okay, that's um, okay if you channel it properly. Mm-hmm. So Elise is worried about picking the right undergraduate school to go to college. All right. Well, it's a good thing to think about for sure. I think um, really what it comes down to is that there's no perfect college uh, in terms of pre-medical. Well, there, there's, there's one. Oh, God, yeah, the University of Florida. Universe, blah, blah. The University of Florida is <laughs> pretty perfect. Yeah, it doesn't help them wearing a UF shirt in support. 
Uh, anyhow, yes, we all love University of Florida. Uh, but really, there's no perfect college for medical uh, edu- per- for pre medical education. Uh, I think uh, you, with the caveat that you do want to go to a university or college uh, that is going to challenge you academically and that's going to allow you to uh, succeed and show that you can handle the rigors of um, a pretty heavy duty science curriculum, uh, because that'll all factor into your AMCAS application down the road. And certainly if you are at a school that does not challenge you academically and doesn't set you up with good science classes, um, for example, let's say they're the bare minimum prerequisites, but they're not really challenging and they don't uh, really uh, allow you to show your stuff, then when it gets time eventually uh, to go to medical school, let's say, and you're sitting in your medical school classrooms, it's going to be insane. I mean, it's it's an extremely rigorous, grueling uh, journey. And if you don't have the 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 pre-medical, you know, backing kind of academically, it's going to be really hard to, to get through that successfully. Uh, so I think, you know, make sure when you're looking at colleges, you, you want to go to a good school in the sense that a, a school that, uh, is going to give you those, those challenging science classes. I wouldn't also put, uh, a big party school at the top of your list because if you are someone who gets really easily drawn into that whole scene, then you're going to be taking t- a lot of time away from your studying potentially, and that can also make your grades suffer. But I think at the end of the day, University of Florida's big party school <laughs> and a great academic school. Well, so. but that segues very nicely into my next point, which is you can certainly go to a big football school, a big school with a ton of other stuff going on if you're the kind of person who has a lot of self-discipline. Self-discipline is so important as a student, as a pre-medical student, a medical student. Uh, because you're always going to have to uh, teach yourself at certain times and, and you have to have that discipline to go and sit in the library and get your studying done. So uh, you have to have that self-discipline, but with that, you do want a school that's going to challenge you and, and support you in your career toward medical school. Yeah. And I talked about this in one of our first podcasts in session three, which you can get at medicalschoolhq.net slash three, the number three. And... And I've talked about this with Dr. Politis as well in, in another podcast, um, I believe, uh, Session 23, where I, I asked the question, from a, from a medical school admission standpoint, does it really matter? Does the name on that diploma really matter? And his response to me was, if a student goes to an ab, uh, kind of a, an off-the-wall liberal arts school in the middle of nowhere that has 400 students and nobody's heard of that school, the admissions committee doesn't know how to interpret your GPA hmm. to judge it. It's and, like you're an alien. <laughs> yeah, to, to rank it against other students. Yeah. If you go to a well-known university, and it doesn't have to be a... a the top pre-med university. But if you go to a, a university that's been around and has produced medical students and in, in coming out of pre-med, mm-hmm. then then the school is able to know, okay, the last 3.75 GPA student that we got from the University of Florida did this. They were this kind of student. They They were prepared. They weren't prepared. And so we know that another 3.75 student likely will be around the same. Mm-hmm. And so that's where it comes into play with um, going to a, a well-known school or going to a small school. And that kind of plays into the the whole community college thing that, that Allison, you were just talking about. 
the whole rigorous coursework. Mm-hmm. Admissions committees want to see that you can handle the coursework because medical school is not easy. We we all know that. We've all harped on it. It's it's the the whole drinking from the fire hose analogy. And if you strictly go to a community college for most of your prereqs, then a medical school admissions committee might not like that. And if you go to each school's website, they will. Uh, some of them will specifically say um, that you can't have your prereqs at a community college, or if you have your prereqs at a com- at a community college, they need to have been transferred to a four-year college and have that degree from a four-year college. And so you're risking some things by going to community college. And and we understand that for financial reasons, you might have to, for timing reasons, because community college might offer the classes you need at night, you might have to do that. But realize that you might be um, having a little bit more of an uphill battle on the other end. So the ultimate thing to pick a school, go somewhere, um and and this is what yes, we go talked somewhere. about. Go go somewhere. <laughs> we talked about this in in, in session three. I talked I talked about it in session three. If you want to and you need to stay around family, go to a school near your family. If you need to get away from your family, go to a school away from your family. If you hate the cold weather, don't go to a school in uh somewhere up north where you have the winter. Yeah. Don't go to Harvard just because the name is Harvard that has a terrible uh, winter here in Boston. Oh, it's not that bad. It's, I went to school in Montreal, for God's sakes. You ain't seen cold. So, <laughs> But if somebody knows that they don't really like the cold and they get seasonal affective disorder and are going to be miserable throughout the winter, it's not a good place to go. Um, if they like the beach, don't go to Nebraska. Go to some place where you know you're going to be happy, where you know you're going to be able to flourish and and don't go to a place just because of the name on the diploma. Right. I think uh, no college is perfect, and there every college student encounters bumps in the road and times that are harder than others, but you do want to set yourself up, like you're saying, Ryan, for the things that you know about yourself. Uh, and you could go somewhere that's totally different than what you know, but you have to be someone who's open-minded if you're going to do that and willing to experience new things. Yeah. So another question... I'm pulling up here. And I get this one a lot, I think. Um, this is a student says, I'm currently a freshman. This is from Nick. I'm currently a freshman attending, I won't say the school's name. Uh, I am a bit confused on what to do as a career. I enrolled at, uh, to this university following nursing as a major, but I don't think that nursing is what I want to do. Um, I've been recommended to follow pre-med. At first, I was not sure exactly what it was until I did some research. It catches my interest, but I am still hesitant on the topic. I apologize if my letter seems to be unrelated and goes on. So I responded to Nick and I I was a little confused on his email because he's saying he was nursing, but he doesn't really like nursing. And so I asked him why, what, what, it, what was it about nursing that drew him to it in the first place? And why is he now second guessing himself? And he wrote back and said, uh, he's not quite sure what drew him into nursing, but he believes it was the fact that his mother is a nurse. What had changed my mind was sitting in a hospital, watching all the nurses work and come in at late hours 
Knowing that they work very much and don't get paid what they should for all their hard work, I decided that I want to aim higher. I am aiming higher to become the doctor in the room. I want to have the highest authority that I have the capability of earning. Forgive me if my explanation seems unrealistic. I am motivated by seeing other people achieve their goal. The question that I ask is, if it is right for me to follow this path of pre-med to achieve what I want, I'm willing to put in the hard work and dedication. So, what do you think about that, Allison? Well, uh, I think if you haven't, for people who haven't listened to our podcast about the five reasons to go into medical school and the five reasons not to, that's a good one to listen to. That's the first thing that popped into my mind. And that was uh, session 45, so medicalschoolhq.net slash 45. I think Nick brings up some interesting points. I think wanting to become a physician because you're interested in having a leadership role is a good thing. But uh, wanting to become, quote, the doctor in the room, kind of the head honcho, the boss, I don't think that's a good reason to go to medical school. Um, You know, you can become the CEO of a company. (laughs) You can do a lot of other things. And uh, the other thing to know is that when you're working on a healthcare team, uh, sometimes the nurses are directing the doctors on what to do. I know plenty of nurses who can run a code and don't need a single doctor in the room. Um, And Julio can probably attest to this um, from working in the ER. You know, it's uh, doctors, um, you know, the traditional thing is wearing that white coat and having, you know, kind of the authority over the but medicine, as we say all the time, is a team sport, and it's so important to work together as a team for the health of a patient. So, wanting to become kind of the big boss, I don't, I don't think that that kind of jives with the culture of medicine anymore. Um, and then he made another point. Oh, about salary. So that's interesting too, because there are some nurses I know who make quite a few more <laughs> dollars than a doctor will ever make. Some of the critical care nurses who um, are just amazing and work, yes, a lot of hours, but are saving lives all the time. Um, and they are making more money than some doctors I know who are in primary care, or working in uh, hospitals, maybe in an academic center. So you can't rely on doctors making money like they, again, traditionally used to. It's it's a career where, yes, in certain uh, parts of medicine, certain fields in surgery, you can make uh, a good salary, a, a pretty high salary, but not something you want to go into medicine for. If, if you want to, if you're doing it for the big bucks, then you're, you may have a rude awakening down the line when you have a lot of loans to pay back and, and insurance companies are not compensating what they used to for procedures and other things. Uh, and again, money, you can find that in, you know, the stock market. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, not, shouldn't be the goal. Yeah. What, what, what was the ultimate reason that we talked about? Mm, what do you mean for not going in? No, for going in. Oh, for going in. Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, you're, what you want to be focused on is, is trying to improve lives, the, the health and lives of other people. And that should yeah. be the central goal of what, you know, you are wanting to do when you go in to become any kind of healthcare provider and, and certainly yeah. a physician. And and that's the, the question that I was asking Nick when I when I kind of rebutted and said, explain a little bit further. Because if, if he was going into nursing saying, I want to help people, and nursing is what I know because that's what my mother did. Mm-hmm. And then he said, but I realized as a physician, I have a little bit more authority and I might be able to help in a little bit different way and kind of be the ultimate uh, final answer. Yeah, more autonomy. I mean, all of that is autonomy. totally legitimate. Absolutely. Then I would say, 
Nick, go go for it. Yeah, go get him. Um, but Nick sounds unsure, and it almost sounds like he didn't really know the pre-med world, which is okay. Well, and I think, though, one of the things we talked about when we saw that email is also that uh, that brings up why it's so important to get direct clinical experience one-on-one with another physician, with a physician. Uh, because if you're, it's great, you know, to have an in like that with your, your family member who's in nursing who can hook you up and get you into a hospital and start shadowing with a doctor. Um, but if you're spending a lot of your time sitting, you know, and, and kind of watching the flow and, and not really getting one-on-one time with a physician and seeing what their job is really like, then you're not going to be getting, uh, you're not going to get the experience you need to know whether or not it's for you. Yeah. That's it. That's so it. keep thinking, Nick, and <laughs> come talk to us. <laughs> yeah, keep thinking. And, and, and it really is uh, what it comes down to is getting that experience, re- finding out what a physician does. Um, and, and I think ultimately you're going to find that the physician in the room doesn't always have that highest authority that, that you mm-hmm. think they're going to have. And it might not give you that power trip that it sounds like. And, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but... It doesn't. It doesn't seem like you're going to get that um, that that power trip that you want or are looking for. Yeah. So I think reward in medicine comes in a different way. It's not about money. It's it's not about being the boss and the head honcho. It's it's um, it's really about just the the. And I don't mean this. You know, I we mean this genuinely. It's really about the inner reward you get when you you help another person and, and improve their life. You know, their health, or you save their life, or you know, and and doing that with a group of people is just as satisfying and sometimes more so than if you were trying to do that on your own. Yeah. So I, I want to bring back Julio. Julio, do you do you have any uh, words of wisdom on that? Since you um, have some experience, I think um, I think Allison had it right when she said if you're if you're going to be going into healthcare in general whether it's in the capacity of a physical therapist a physician a nurse even a nurse's aide or a tech at its central you need to keep in mind that you are there um, for selfless reasons mm-hmm. to help the patient and to better the lives of another person um, a lot of people go into medicine for, for different reasons. Some do it for the prestige. Some do it, um, you know, for financial financial reasons. But I believe at the end of the day, the passion that has you coming back and going above and beyond is that selfless drive to help another person. Yeah. Absolutely. Very um, well. No matter what you do. Yeah. And, and it, it, just explain briefly what you do and why, why I asked you for your input. Um, I, I have uh, been in healthcare for the greater part of my adult career. Um, I have been uh, an EMT, uh, graduated to a paramedic, and I actually did go to nursing school. And I, I currently work in an emergency department as a nurse. Okay. Um, I've been a nurse for a good seven years. Wow. Yeah. And just in nursing um, in and of itself. So. We see, I, I like to joke around saying that we, we get a front row seat to the best show on earth. Yeah. <laughs> you see everything. You see everything. You see people from all different walks of life. So give me your experience, uh, and maybe you don't have any, or maybe you don't want to say, give me your experience of some physicians that, that maybe have that kind of mindset that Nick might be thinking of, that the doctor is the the ultimate authority in the room 
and doesn't work as a team player. Do you have any experience like that? And, and how does patient care work in that arena? Um, it, it's, it's difficult. I, you immediately right off the bat, you find that those physicians who do get into it for the wrong reasons, there's a, a disconnect between uh, the, the, team, the team approach to patient care uh, right off the bat. They feel, uh, in my experience, I have found that they feel that they're an island unto themselves. And uh, they do a great job of delegating um, tasks and authority, but they, they get that, that self-satisfaction of being at the top of the totem pole. And um, I believe that is detrimental for a couple of reasons, but one of the main reasons is they are not open to constructive criticism, which is huge in healthcare. Um, but for whatever reasons, they, they just there's a big disconnect between the rest of the staff, the ancillary staff, as well as the nurses or, or, or even other physician providers um, from them doing uh, the best possible care that they can for the patient. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that insight. All right. Let's, uh, let's do one more question. Sure. What do you think? However many more you want. All right. Um, let me see. So Marvin emailed in and said, I've recently listened to your podcast, Session 12, Shadowing Secrets. And I've wished I had listened to this beforehand. In the past month, I've been shadowing a liver surgeon, but due to school starting soon, I will continue again during the winter break. One problem I am facing is developing a relationship with the surgeon because post-surgery, the surgeon will go to a break or move on to the next surgery. With the goal of obtaining a letter of recommendation, how should I go about furthering or further developing the relationship? I feel in order to display my capabilities and interest uh, lies during the surgery, but how should I balance demonstrating my interest and not being too intrusive? seems easier to obtain a, a letter of recommendation from, phys- he says from physicians as opposed to surgeons, but he meant just from outside the operating room, from, mm. from inside. That's probably true because if you're operating, I mean, you're you're really focused on the actual technique. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so my response to him was that if he's shadowing a surgeon, and and we kind of talked about this yesterday when we interviewed a general surgeon for our specialty series in the academy, mm-hmm. was the fact that a surgeon operates only about 20% of the time. Mm-hmm. They are out of the operating room and seeing patients in clinic and seeing patients on the wards the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot more time to interact with that surgeon outside of the operating room. You just need to make it known that you want to see clinic patients as well. Absolutely. And one of the things that uh, the general surgeon who we spoke with yesterday mentioned is that you can teach a monkey to operate, which may or may not uh, it's <laughs> offend true. some people out there, but but you can't teach bedside manner. Uh, you can't teach a monkey bedside manner. You can't teach a monkey about the diagnostic, the, the surgical decision making that happens behind the scenes. And I think part of how you show your intellect and your enthusiasm, your passion uh, as a pre-medical student um, and as a medical student is is potentially when you're working and outside the, the OR, uh, just like you're saying, coming in, showing that you've read about something, asking questions about it. 
uh, again, just showing enthusiasm and interest every single day when you, when you show up. Uh, so I would think that Marvin has the right idea that trying to get more exposure, more time with this person, the surgeon, uh, outside the OR, if, if he's really interested in surgery, is a good idea. And seeing, maybe asking the surgeon personally, you know, what what clinic time do you have? What other time do you have that I can, you know, shadow and, and observe with you to, to learn more? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the perfect approach is just ask the physician and say, hey, I'm looking to ask you some more questions and maybe get to know patient care pre-op or post-op and, and show interest in that and ask uh, about shadowing in, in different environments. One thing, too, is that medical students are not graded ever on their surgical skills. I mean, I think if you're a good suture or a good retractor, that's great, but <laughs> you're not actually graded ever in medical school based on I was your... the best darn retractor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so here's, a, here's a, just a quick tip for, the, for those listening. <laughs> as a retractor, which you are as a, a, a during your surgery uh, That means you hold things back, okay? You, you hold back skin and fat and bellies. You, and you just hold on to metal I? devices and try yeah. to do ankle pushes so, so that you don't pass out. <laughs> so one of the things that I realized early on is that I put too much effort into retracting. Oh, God. And I would get too tired. <laughs> And and then I would I would kind of let my muscles go a little bit. I'm like, hey, it's not moving, and, and let go a little bit more. So, do the least amount of work that you have to do to move whatever you have to move out of the way. Don't don't go to a full on isometric contraction. Well, especially because if the other person's not holding on correctly, I mean, you could have some disaster. If you, you want to be, it's, it's a body. Be gentle, everyone. Yeah, be gentle. But but seriously, I mean, medical students aren't graded on that. So you can imagine if you're a pre med out there and you want to do surgery and you're really excited about diving into the OR with someone you're shadowing, you don't have to feel like you have to impress them with your amazing, you know, spatial skills and surgical skills because no one is going to be expecting that from you either as a pre med or in medical school impress them with your intellect and your knowledge and your passion yeah that's awesome <laughs> yeah, i realized that very i don't know when you never I told that. me that oh yeah it was my secret <laughs> so we have uh jess just popped on hi jess hi we can't hear you jess can you unmute your microphone maybe doesn't look like she's muted no maybe we just can't hear Oh, there we go. (laughs) Hi, Jess. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Good. You have a question for us? Yeah. So I'm currently a high school student, and I'm considering going to a BSMB program. So I'm Canadian, so that makes it even more competitive. Mm -hmm. So I'm just not sure if it's worth all the extra work and just just for that extra year, just the shorter pre-undergraduate and then the med school. I'm just not sure if it will be worth it or not. Okay, so how many total years would the program be for the BSMD? Um, it would be seven because your undergraduate would be shorter. Yeah, so okay. it, so those fa- those not familiar with the BSMD, some some are still eight year programs, but you're guaranteed admission into medical school. Uh, some are seven year programs, um, and some of them you don't have to take the MCAT, which is amazing. Yeah. Some of them you do and have to get a minimum score, which kind of sucks. Um, but so th- there's a lot of different options, but. I'm wondering, it, the question comes down to what's the harm of applying and trying to get into a BSMD program? Yeah. So you can, you can apply, and if they deny you, they, they, then you go to 
the normal BS track and then go to medical school, right? Mm-hmm. What's what's your thinking or, or what are you worried about applying and getting rejected and then just going the, the regular route? Yeah, um, I don't know if I'm totally into doing the whole accelerated rate to things because it's really competitive and, you know, you have to keep a certain GPA and it's okay. a lot of extra work, it seems. Mm-hmm. So it's it's more along the lines of you don't know if you want to subject yourself to the 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 accelerated program and not really yeah. should you apply um, Do you, pros and cons. Okay. How, how also just so uh, how did you get to that you were even interested in BSMD? Have you had experience in hospitals or clinics or? Yeah, definitely. Um, both of my parents are doctors, so okay. I know all about that, and I volunteer at hospitals. Too, okay. So. Okay. Interesting. Got it. So that's that's the gut check for you. <laughs> do do you want to subject yourself to that? Um which is stressful. Uh doing 4 years of undergrad and 4 years of medical school is stressful. Doing 3 years of undergrad and 4 years of med school straight through is is stressful. So luckily the the med school part isn't really shortened. It's just the the BS part which could be BS in a lot of cases. Get well, it? <laughs> but the other thing, I mean, what's interesting about, and I went to undergrad at McGill um, in Canada. So uh, one of the things that is different still about a lot of Canadian universities, even just with their undergrad programs as compared to the United States, is that they're so much um, more focused. I mean, for my physiology degree, I had, I think, three electives. And so um, the fact that they're kind of shortening that um, may not be such a bad thing. I was so exhausted after four years of uh, undergrad at McGill. I was so tired. (laughs) Um, I ended up taking a year to do some internships and get some more experience, clinical experience, which was really valuable for me. Um, But I think either way, it's tiring. But it's also if you're at a program like that, you're going to be uh, so well prepared for medical school. And that's one of the things that I so value to this day that that McGill gave me is is that I was at a really rigorous undergrad. And I felt like when I walked into medical school, yes, I mean, it was, it was really challenging, but I was kind of used to studying every weekend already. <laughs> that was my life already. So um, there are definitely benefits to doing that, I think, too. It's just, I, I think when you're in high school and you're thinking about your future, it's like, oh God, you're, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're, going to join this really intense phase in your life so there may be kind of just that anticipation that you know concern in that sense but either way I think it's going to be um, a challenging road and it's just a question of kind of how many years and um, but I think it'll ultimately in my mind at least it it would probably serve you really well as preparation for med school going directly in like that and so I'll I'll add one piece which I I think you asked it earlier, what is it really worth that one year? And I think in the grand scheme of life, that one year really doesn't matter. If if you start med school a year earlier and become a doctor a year earlier and and finish your residency a year earlier, it it doesn't really matter. Um yeah, you can always do things later. That's the beauty of an MD, too. I mean, and we actually we just talked to someone last night who during his residency took off two years to do an MPH. Um, 
And, you know, we have friends who've traveled all over the place doing Doctors Without Borders and other other things. So, I mean, your life doesn't like stop when you become an MD and then you're just working forever. You can definitely do a lot of wonderful things with your degree. And, and that's one of the things I love about it, too. Not that we've done that many things yet, but, you know, there's the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah, thank you. Not a problem. Thanks for joining us. So, Julio, if you have a second, can you... Um, maybe talk about the academy and what it means to you. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I've mentioned actually to a couple of uh, coworkers and a couple other pre-meds at uh, at the college that that I'm attending um, about the academy and how grateful it is. It's just like the service that these two, you know, just selfless physicians provide. Um, I, I seriously, I, if I didn't know about it, I would tef- definitely take advantage of it um, to its utmost because you have personalized office time, I guess, if you want to call it, or you just have, have uh, an opportunity to shoot and ask questions to uh, some medical professionals who can help in whatever process, whether if it's MCAT or interviewing skills. Um, they also have uh, webinars that you can learn about different specialties as well. Like I just went over and uh, looked at the uh, the neuro- neurology uh, <laughs> uh, webinar. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was really really good because as a pre med myself, um, I have an idea what I would like to get into, but it's so broad. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a medical career is so broad; you can do just about anything. So it's good to have a whole bunch of different things that the academy provides, so that way you can make the best informed decision. Because this is honestly is a decision that you're going to be living with for the rest of your life. You know, this is a career <laughs> that you're going to be having. Dum dum dum. <laughs> so you're <laughs> you're hoping that you can make the career or the decision that you're going to be satisfied with. Um. So yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And yeah. not just that, you just have a lot of a lot of other people who are vying for the same thing as well. You get to meet a, a lot of other people, and you have the camaraderie of uh, interacting, communicating with other people and as well. Talk about the anonymity or lack of anonymity. Do, do you think that helps? I, I do. I believe that that does help. Um, there there are other uh, websites that you can just make up any handle or, or any avatar and uh, nobody really knows uh, who you are. You can be like Joe Blog from the street or anything. But the thing with the Academy is you use your real name, um, uh, most of us do have a real profile picture of ourselves up there. So it's kind of like a, an, an online community that you would get in an online class. All right, folks. That was the Google Hangout chat with Allison and myself. And we had Julio and Jess join us and uh, somebody else that never was able to say hi. So I hope you enjoyed that. If that's a format that you liked, maybe you want to participate next time. Leave us a comment uh, on the comment page, medicalschoolhq.net slash 48. We'll take you to the comment page where you can leave a comment. Let us know if you like this format. Let us know if we should have one again soon so you can jump on and be part of the the podcast excitement. You can also uh, shoot us a, a tweet over uh, on Twitter. We are at medicalschoolhq. You can say hi to us on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash medicalschoolhq. Or you can uh, shoot me an email. I'm ryan at medicalschoolhq.net or allison at medicalschoolhq.net. Folks, I, uh, again, appreciate everything that you do for us. I appreciate you spending some time listening to us and hopefully 
As always, you got some great information out of everything that we talked about today, and we hope to see you next time here at the Medical School Headquarters. 